You're listening to the Driven by Design Awards Wrap. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is Kirsten Mann. Hi, Mark. Welcome back. Well, thank you, Kirsten. I, it doesn't feel like I've been away, but uh, I have. I've, I've been everywhere, man, I think is the yeah, term. You've been all over the world. Well, I'm, I, yeah, but I've been all over the world, but you've actually you've had a bit of a change happen in your world <laughs> since we've last spoken. I have. It's, it's kind of quite a change. Now, I kind of gave the game away last time when I said, oh, you're still the, the GM of, of design. Yeah. Because I had a little bit of a premonition. I felt it in my waters that there was something, <laughs> yeah, something, something was going down. Yeah. yeah, so now I'm the VP of product and experience. <laughs> so, so, so what's the difference between being a VP versus being a GM of design and experience? Uh, more admin, <laughs> maybe. Um, no, more people. <laughs> so now you've become an administrator. Yeah. <laughs> okay. At the moment, it feels well, like Well, look, we'll, we'll get you along to some weekend, you know, design hacks or design jams or something, and we'll let you get back on the tools. But, <laughs> but I'm sure the team here at Aconex are really, really thankful that they've got you in the saddle in the new role. Well, we'll get there eventually. It's a new journey. Now, I'm going to drop in some, I'm trying not to do some name dropping in that, but as we go you through this design journey, yeah, I, I kind of feel like the world's biggest name dropper sometimes. There's some things to share that came out from my last uh, global tour. But the, now, the theme we're talking about is design journeys, systems and platforms. Yeah. Now, is this because you've just been on this massive journey? You wanted to kind of tie this around what we're talking about today? I think part of it came out while I was on the road and and I was meeting so many fantastic people that I realised there were so many stories which were all about the design journeys that the, the different people that I met that I was meeting with were on. And it was worthwhile to just have a bit of point of reference for people who aren't so familiar with what a design journey is. They, they're probably not a design um, expert. They might be a commissioner of design, they might be a project team member, but they're not familiar with the different shapes and, and natures of design. So so I chose nine projects out of, out of the Driven by Design Awards library mm -hmm. and I want to just go through and talk about well, what are some of the different considerations in here because every one of them has a different challenge in it and there's also a couple of just remembering what's the difference between a design journey rather than a manufacturing process or a design journey which is different to technology upgrades or a design journey which is different to a construction project. So why don't we jump in? Where's our first project? We're going to London Bridge Station and this is a project by Grimshaw Architects. Now what's really interesting about this is they've basically had to build a whole new station and work around an existing one. So, hey, that would be an easy gig, not. Look, there's some people who try to go do these big public infrastructure projects and they can't even do them when they're in a greenfield site. No. So, so, you know, I think if the idea that you're actually, you're not in a brownfield site, you're in an active site. It's an active site, there you go. And you're in an active site and you're trying to work out how to fit in new capacity that's really complicated. It would be, you'd have, and this having been there, it is a busy location. You've got crowds coming from everywhere. And I can just imagine the chaos potentially with all the construction work that would be taking place to create this station. But people wouldn't care, right? They want to get on their commute. They want to get to where they need to go. So they're not really... Yeah, and so, so that's going to be there. That's about customer interruption. 
What I want to, what I want to make sure that we're focusing on, because we've got customers, uh, the customer journey, that's going to change because mm-hmm. this construction is happening. We've also got that there's a construction journey where no doubt as they were building, they, they might have found that they needed to blast out some rock because they didn't realise it was rock. They thought they could take in excavators, but they have to do some blasting. And you've got to work out in an active station, how do you do that? That's a construction journey. Let's go into the design journey. Well, and, and this, that's the one that counts for this, right? We, we, Where it's the tenant. It, it's basically going to be the owning experience, which is what is the final experience? Is what people really care about. What is this amazing station going to be looking like? And how will it affect my life? That's what people really care about. That's right. But in this type of project, we often get caught up in the, the construction. And if we go think about what might happen in a seven-year period. Mm-hmm. so A lot. <laughs> well, if you go think in, in a seven-year period, you may have different security protocols. Mm. You know, We now know that when we're building public places that we want to make sure that there are bollard barriers and that's mandatory where people are congregating because of some of the inappropriate behavior by the few mm-hmm. we want to go protect the many mm. we also know that there's uh, different ideas around storage lockers that where we may have had storage lockers in public places we now don't have them yeah. rubbish bins change so so there's a lot about the way this station is going to actually be finished off which will be malleable because our lives change and our standards change. Mm. But the team at Grimshaw here will have had to have made sure that they're going and doing the macro and really the bones of the building aren't going to change. No. And then when they're getting down to the, those various layers underneath that, that they're making sure that they're keeping it contemporary, that they're making sure that they're keeping it with modern materials and the, and the changes that come around. And they're also picking up what's the way that people are moving through stations now. And we know that people's egress around public facilities has slowed down because they're all looking down on their phones. They're, yeah. not, a, they're not actually walking through the stations. No. And so we've got, a, we've got a different flow that's mm-hmm. happening in stations as against when they started the project because seven years ago you would have thought that there were very few people looking down at their phones all the time. Now it's, it's just about everybody. So it's a really, so the design journey there is, it's complex because there's so many stages, but it's also, it's, you have to be aware of the environmental aspects in that journey and keep adapting. And that's no different than any other design journey, let's face it. Some well, are just shorter and some are longer. So it is different It is different in the sense that there's a longevity issue here which is not common mm-hmm. in, in design journeys. Especially digital experiences. Yep. And then... And that's what makes it quite difficult for the various parties to understand what's going on because you're saying, oh, we need to make a change, we need to change something. Um, We're altering and people are saying, but what's changed? Mm. Train pulls into the station, train pulls out of the station, people get on, people get off. Why do you have have to change this? So so, so I think that's important that having that nuance about how the people move, what Mm. what are some of the security requirements, what are some of the technology changes that have taken place? really important in that design journey. And it's not that it could have been designed seven years ago, built as the original plans were and then left because there will have been some of the physical changes during construction, there will have been some of the utilization changes during its life cycle. That to me is a good summary of the design journey for something like London Bridge. Well, that was number one. So, <laughs> so we're going to, and we might have been, some of these are pretty interesting though, I think. So it, it depends. This next one, the World Train Centre Transportation Hub. Now, again, it's, I think your term was, it's 
basically when you see this, it's like a phoenix rising from the ground. It is a phoenix rise. So, so, so it's got two expressions. As you're standing at street level and you're looking at it or from one of the buildings looking down, it's got this... It looks something like a prehistoric beast coming out of the ground or a phoenix. It, it's this statement, which is, we will rise. And it's because it's at, for those who don't know, it's at the World Trade Centre site. Um, and it's going to be the new transportation hub. Is now, well, It's not going to be. It is the well, new transportation hub. It's the new hub. transportation hub, but not necessarily for transport yet. <laughs> so well, well, is it not fully functioning? No, yet, no, is it? It, is, it is fully functioning. But I think what, what I've seen happen in the last 18 months is it's gone from this pristine cathedral. Mm -hmm. So as, as New York was coming to terms with the whole um, Ground Zero site or uh, World Trade Center site, reopening, there was a very solemn period of time in there. But this building is part of a shopping centre. Right. Okay, so, so it's got a commercial it, aspect it, to it. It has got a commercial aspect. And that then means that what was nothing was meant to go and interrupt the floor, the, the concourse floor area and it was meant to be kept clean. That's now turning into a design cycle, which is we need to make this entertaining. We need to make sure that it's actually relevant for the people who are commuting. And it's also commercially returning for the, for the landlords of the building. This isn't a state-owned property, which is just meant to be there as a monument. It's not a church. That's an interesting decision, isn't it? Yeah, like, it's, that's a bit of a weird one well, in it, itself. It, and I think that's one of, the, one of the interesting things in New York is that they can have these very pragmatic decisions about we need to make sure that this building operates. Yeah. So, so for certain days of the year, they can actually take it back to the state of, right. of a memorial and a celebration. But for the rest of the year, they can also make it operate as a commercial uh, commercial property. And it, this one was one that ran massively over time and budget, wasn't it? Look, it was a little bit late. Yeah, I think. 18 months. <laughs> I, <laughs> if I was waiting for something for 18 months and paying that much, I'd well, be so, yeah, so, yeah, so it did have some time delays on it. But when you see the finished building, it is, it, it is a beautiful, beautiful monument and functional space. Um, it's glorious. But the important thing is, it had a design phase. It went through the construction design phase. Now it's got a life cycle design phase that's going on. How do we make sure that the space keeps working? And they're very different teams. One of them's more about events, pop-ups, activations, mm. rather than architecture and interior design. So, so I think for our listeners who are looking at it saying, so the same building had an architectural design phase. It has an interior design fit-out phase, which is ongoing as tenants change. And it's also got a pop-up and activations design phase, which is that life cycle that it's going through. So it's got this multi-stage design process it's going through. Basically. I think what we're hearing is design is a continuum. It's not just a, a, a beginning and an end. Indeed. And I think we're going to continue to see that theme in, in the projects we're looking at. So next up, we're going to International Towers, um, which is in Sydney. Now, these are these three sibling buildings that you would see on the Sydney skyline. Awesome. They're pretty impressive. And it's formed um, a Western extension to Sydney's CBD. So you kind of, it's, it's become quite a landmark in its own right. But what's in, so why did you kind of feel that, what the, was the design journey with this one? So, so to me, this site here, which is called Barangaroo, mm -hmm. Barangaroo has had a, um, say, major urban plan that's been put on it. So that's one, one design phase. There's another one which was there was a large park that was put in, which is a landscaping 
a landscape design base. We've also got a large casino site that's going into the same envelope of land. And that's another design phase. But these office buildings were, it was a stage where there was meant to be a retail, entertainment and office complexes that were put in. And then in the process of that, there would have been 20 buildings that have gone up. Right. And then here we've got three of them. So these are major, major development sites. So we've got all of that construction consideration mm -hmm. from the architecture. We've got the interior fit out for all the different tenants that are in there. And some of those tenants may go in a 18 month period well, and need to be changed again. I think again. the interesting thing with it too would be it, the challenge here would be the continuity in the design experience. If that's not being carried forward and in somebody's head, it'd be quite challenging to know over this period of time why decisions were made and what were the factors that led to that change. Yeah. And I think that's probably, again, a theme that we'd see quite common in some of these projects today. And it's very, very normal in these, in these large-scale sites mm. that there'll be, if you think of them like Lego blocks, that there might be 20 Lego blocks on the major site. And that there's proposals that one of the Lego blocks might be a cultural institution. But for some reason, the funding model for that cultural institution doesn't work. And all of a sudden, that cultural institution now becomes a multi-tier cafe because mm. the financial model works for that. You've got all sorts of nuance that changes mm. there. There isn't the same flow of people down to the cultural centre. Some of those community building aspects that would have been in the cultural centre aren't going to be there. And there's a need to go think about whether it's wayfinding or whether it's actually um, the size of the boulevards that you've left open because of the size of the audience that's coming through. There's all sorts of changes that take place in that design journey. And that's not really sorted out until the site gets populated. Yeah. And so you could, if, if you went and you said, oh, well, you have to go deliver me what was originally proposed, we're never going to get there. No. Because there's so many different design decisions. There's so many different commercial decisions that are taking place there. And it's, and it's being comfortable with that, um, say, almost like a plastic state that keeps changing and it's malleable. It's almost like you need a platform to understand those design decisions. <laughs> Who offers a platform like that, I wonder? Now, now Kirsten, that was well and truly uh, the most shameless bug I think I've ever had. You just did. <laughs> there you go. All right. No, but we, but we know that. So Aconex there from the operations of the site is one thing. But you still need some people who are holding true the essence of what that entire site's yeah, meant to be. Yeah, that original vision for yeah. it as well. And, can drive and, it. Uh, and, and I think that's really interesting, the challenges that come out for them. Definitely. Um, I do know with, uh, with a, a major redevelopment site here in Melbourne that I saw in last year's Melbourne Design Awards that there was a... Um, uh, playground experience that was being put in place and it happened to be completed by some people I used to share offices with and they were involved with the master planning of this site and I stopped sharing offices with them uh, around about 1999 right. <laughs> so, and, and, and you're going so that's how you know that's a 20-year cycle yeah uh, yeah, 15, 20 year cycle from when the first sketches were done about the master plan through to the delivery of some of those final elements. And if we look in Hudson Yards in New York, that's going to be the same, uh, same scenario. And when I was there and I was looking at what was happening in Hudson Yards, it was astounding to go see how, how it's coming along. But I also noticed some of the original elements that I was told about 
aren't being done and there's other buildings in their place. But you know what's, I think what's really interesting there, it made me think about, um, you know, it, Amazon, for example, when some of their original building designs, and this, this kind of change shows how culture with work environments change. Um, they originally, in their older buildings, and would have, you know, they were thinking about, do we have creches for people with kids or do we have playgrounds? Now they have parks for dogs because you're allowed to bring your pets to work. It's not about the creche for the kids or the playground anymore. It's the playground for the animals, which kind of shows the change in that work focus and culture, right? Like you think 20 years ago when they were first doing buildings and everything, it was a totally different type of support that you I'm, were looking I'm for. I'm just thinking about the comment that you made there and the person I'm having dinner with tomorrow night. And she'd be turning around saying, the reason why there's no need for the creche is that they don't know how to actually have working mothers at work. Right. But I think that's true, that we do yeah. see these changes take place. And then is it all of a sudden it looks like that the dogs are staying on what looks like uh, creche playing equipment or are they actually in a dog-friendly <laughs> spot? So, so we do know that there's repurposing that takes place. But I think also here, just before we leave the, the built space, I was I was down at, and here's another you know claim because I'm um, uh, dropping another name here. I was down at, uh, at Wembley Stadium. And Wembley Stadium is going through a development, um, so the density of development around the stadium is, you won't be able to see the stadium soon. Right. And and actually, the Wembley Stadium, were, as I understand it, is actually being bought by somebody who was then going to disassemble it and, and assemble it somebody else in the world, and they worked out the shipping cost was too much. So there was the stadium staying there. So we see these cycles go on where the design journey for something like the Wembley site was stadium came, attracted people, shopping mall goes in, initial property development, property development continues, stadium leaves, New new plan for for the grounds and more um, residential and shopping goes in there and that's the cycle. That's the cycle. Can I just say that was one of the first AKX projects too? Wembley <laughs> Stadium is a bad. So <laughs> been around for a while. There you go. So so fantastic. So let's head into into our next project, which is Atlassian and uh, Atlassian and Siren Design here. And Atlassian, uh, as being a company that is just growing so dramatically, um, they're one of the tech companies who have a similar profile to what we saw in the petrochemical mm -hmm. industries in the 60s and 70s, that their growth is so fast that normal lease terms don't apply. Mm. You know, around about the time they finish the fit out and they've worked out where everyone's sitting, they've outgrown the space and they have to move to the next building. So what, what I found interesting with this is that Atlassian are learning from their projects, but they're not actually remediating or rectifying unless it's a huge problem that's in the building. Well, it doesn't seem like they've got time to exactly. take on those learnings and apply them to the next design, which, you know, it, that can be problematic in its own right. And because of the dwell cycle or the planning, you know, delay that happens, they may leapfrog buildings from some of the learnings that they get out of one because they're moving into new buildings so mm. fast. It may not be that they can include all of those insights and learnings in the next execution. It might be the one later. And so that would be, there'd be tension there, right? On, on do we put the clever design or do we have to manage this budget at this point and just keep moving? And, it's, and, and so that takes me back to traffic days and advertising where you have to push the ad out. Yeah. There is a slot 
on television or in a newspaper and the ad has to go in there. So you've got to actually just cut off your ideas and all of those little trimmings that you want to do, commit to something and push it out the door. And I think that's probably what we're seeing Siren having to go do here with their client at, at Lassian, which is they can't just take every bit of feedback. There's a certain cutoff point. We need to deliver a new, a, a new property so that they can move in and that their growth cycle isn't, isn't delayed. And that's a really important design journey to mm. decision to make as well, which is very different to some of the other projects the that we've looked ones. at. This yeah. is you know, shorter design cycles we're seeing here across the overall journey. But hopefully they're able to get that feedback and learning into each building as they go. So the next one we've got is the corner, which is with McCafe. Now, this was an unusual project. I've got to admit, I've never heard of something, McDonald's doing something like this. So this was, this was a learning space that they, that they were trying to understand. So, so one of the problems when you've got a large brand and customer experience, which has been globally spread out like McDonald's, mm. is that you may not have fresh thinking. You don't get a space to go experiment in a standard store. So what often brands will do is that they'll go make a learning lab or an experimental um, space. And so here the team at Landini were brought in to make sure that that experimental space was able to be um, delivered, that McDonald's could go and learn from the different types of cafe experiences, work out does that work with their staff. And so was this ever a functional cafe? Yeah. So it was a functional cafe, but it was like a one-off kind of thing that they were doing. It was a one-off thing. I'm actually, right. I'm not sure if it's still there. If it no. follows the pattern of most of these learning labs, it will have actually got to the end of a probably two-year lease and then disappear. Right. Because what it's about is actually giving yourself the experimental and learning space but as a lab that you can then take your staff through it, the people who are involved with workforce planning, the people who are involved with uh, point of sale retail, the people who are involved with menu planning, that they then get a chance to go and actually look at the store, use it as a laboratory, and then when that functional side is gone, you then actually remove it from the landscape. Well, and it's also, I suppose, an opportunity for them to try radically different things, you know, really push their brand beyond the comfort zone. So in this case here, the design journey is, a, it's it's like a sortie, which is we're going off to go do something. It's got a limited period of time. And we're seeing a lot of this in innovation labs mm, and in transformation. Journey. So next one we've got, now I've got a bit of an association with this brand. It's New Balance and it's the Bird Center. Now, but what I discovered looking at this project was New Balance is a hundred 11 years old or something. I would have no idea of that fact. Yet, they're doing some of the funkiest modern design stores you've ever seen. I always thought you are a classic dame. Yeah. <laughs> so so this, is a, this is slightly older. It's slightly older than the Chanel brand, yes. but it's still as classy. So yeah. here we are, New Balance. And, and what I like about, about getting into the shoe market, particularly in sporting shoes, when I was a kid, guys didn't buy shoes. It was women who went out and bought shoes. <laughs> Did they shoes. wear shoes in those days? <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, they had, and they had an animal skin across them. Thank you very much for that. But uh, so, 
so guys didn't go out and buy shoes. It was actually handbags and shoes were something that ladies did. And now it's all about the runners. Oh right? my God, Father. The, there's so many. The change in this market, which yeah. you've got to say is opening up a new category yeah. is fantastic. But these stores, New Balance, the pace that they have to change their design and the pace that they need to go and come up with new propositions for their customers is dictated by their contemporaries because they're in a race for attention and relevance, not something you'd say, the fittings in, in, mm. uh, the fittings in this shop will last two years, that's when we're actually gonna go replace them. It's a completely disposable site experiences. It's that relevance. Mm. If your competitor has come out with something which makes them more relevant, you're out. You're gonna go change yep. it. And while I was flying through Heathrow, at Terminal 3, I saw this amazing super dry store. The whole front facade was LED video stream. The whole back wall was LED video stream. And I'm going, wow. wow. So they, they're able to go change minute by minute yeah, the expression <laughs> that's in the store. And, and I went and I had a chat with the staff in there and I said, oh, we so love being in this store. Last week I was working at one of the other stores and it, and it didn't feel the same as this right. one. So, so there's this buzz. Yeah, but it's quite clever actually. You could change it pretty easily then. <laughs> yeah, look at it, you could go reskin it every five seconds of your life. So I think for New Balance here, their design journey is that they need to, they need to be continually on the front foot. Mm. And they're also going to have to have some defensive store layouts that they may never deliver because from their competitor's perspective, maybe there wasn't that need to one up. And it's, it's costly. Like this would be a fortune to play in the space. Have you seen how much these shoes cost? <laughs> So that's it's still a lot of shoes. That's a little bit like telling me that the investment in an Apple store is a bad decision. Right. You, you go look, you know, you, you look at the Apple store and you go, that is one hell of a fit out there. That is a very expensive space. True, but there's a lot of shoe stores. Now. But when, when, you're, when you're selling phones at $2,000 a piece that might cost $100 or $200, even if you've done all the shipping, you can have an expensive store. Yeah. When you're selling shoes which are in these price brackets and there's such a voracious appetite for them, I think they're doing okay. They're okay, you reckon. And what's our next project? Well, let's go into BMW Engage. Now, this is an unusual project in the sense of you'd say, what, what's the journey here? Well, I'm going to help our listeners because right. BMW Engage is basically the owner's app for so it's not really a loyalty program because it's not like you get frequent buyer miles or some families might buy multiple bmws but this is actually meant to be an ownership program to go help owners get the most out of their bmw mm -hmm. and and what i find interesting with this is that the car doesn't change but the expectations of the app changes for a couple of reasons one is that Every app that the owner is using is now telling them either that the BMW app is contemporary or it's old-fashioned. Mm -hmm. There's also a thing that we know, you and I know very well, which we call tech debt, yep. which is, or a burning platform mm -hmm. is the other term, which uh, for, for our listeners, when you're involved in the digital world, the new iPhone or iOS comes out and then some features and functions that you relied on are no longer available and you've got to go rethink your app. It's not yeah. just patching something, it could be 
that that functionality is no longer available and you've got to work out a new interaction model to deliver the same service. It's a never-ending design cycle that you're in. So, so listeners, I'm just going to tell you what I saw that happened with Kirsten here. When she was saying that, you could see like the bane of my <laughs> existence is this tech debt thing because we spend so much time fixing the tech debt, we don't necessarily grow the platform. It's true. And I think what people... It, for a lot, as long as we can remember, like even doing digital experiences and everything, right? People would say, "I want a website," and that's the start of that journey. So it's it's not a thing that you can set and forget. It's you've got to be thinking of these things. What is it actually going to cost to stay in play? Exactly. So then let's come up. We've got two more projects here, and I know we we've been taking quite a bit of time to go and explain this because the nature of these the nuance here. Mm. is very particular to the type of subject matter. And so I think what, what I hope that we've been able to go do so far is help our listeners to understand that they're not all the same. No. And a design journey changes, yet design professionals make it seem like it's a singular. There's many and very different aspects here. So our next project that we've got is Ask Izzy. Now, this is a location-based website that helps, I think it's a number of... There's, how many, what are the stats around homeless people? Um, there's basically one in 200 Australians are homeless. So this basically gives them a place where they can go for shelter, identify the various shelters that are near them. Yep. So it's meant to be a support app for people who are either homeless or in need of uh, community support. And what's very interesting for them is if you or I find that we can't actually get into a hotel room somewhere in a city, we can drive somewhere or catch a cab. Mm. If you're homeless, the last thing you want to do is go somewhere where that room availability isn't there. Completely. So it's, it's really critical that, they can, that they're getting real-time information. Well, and a lot of people don't realise that 80% of homeless people have a smartphone. Well, they have access to digital services yeah. and smartphones. And that's probably their most prized and important possession mm. is how do they go navigate the world, which is now a digital world. So the team here at Ask Izzy, that they have exactly the same problem as BMW, it's not so much that their customers are going to turn around and say, oh, the interaction model is old-fashioned, my car doesn't feel as, as luxurious. What they've got is a service that was three different government services mm -hmm. working together that Ask Izzy has, has worked out how to patch you know, together, patch together mm -hmm. is now broken because one of, those, one of those government services had some tech debt and they went and they fixed it and now it broke it for everyone else. Right. And, and that, that scenario of cascading breaking is something which happens more and more now that we come into an integrated digital services world. And I think here, if you were part of the design team, you'd be actually asking questions of, how likely are we needing to go in and change something because one of our support partners changes and then means that our customers don't get the service that we're expecting them to have. And I think you had a beautiful example here with the Google Maps when oh, yeah. they changed their API. So I was at a Product Anonymous evening here in Melbourne and they brought along the, um, the product owner for Google Maps or in fact the Google Maps API. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that gives you an idea where it's not just all Google Maps, it's like just the API. For listeners who don't know what an API is, an API is an application program interface. You probably still don't know what that means. That's how you go put a, say, Google Maps into your website is if you see any website that has uh, Google Maps on it and it's not Google, they're using the API. 
And so what they decided was that there was some stuff that was in their original um, Google Maps integration, which they didn't want to have anymore. And it might have been that it was hacker vulnerable, or it might have been that it was just expensive on their server time. It might have just used some really old methods that were no longer supported in browsers. Mm -hmm. And they said, we're going to shut this down. And then when they went to go shut it down, they found out that there were community groups who were saying, if you shut this down, people will die. Right. That's not normal. <laughs> That's not normal at all. Yeah. And they had no idea that there were people who had life dependency on something that they thought was just a bit of technology. Isn't that amazing? And it's only when, I mean, the, at least the great thing there was a Google communicated their intent to shut that down. And then when people complained, they didn't and do they, it. And they responded and so that they then kept, a, a, kept it active and that they spent the time to go deal with whatever issues that they had with it. But, but that's the really important thing if you're actually the owner of something like Ask is that you're going to use Google Maps APIs. You're going to use something from the different banks, from mm. different government services. There is interdependency in all of this. And so thinking about your design journey and your product journey is really important so that you don't necessarily do some harm that you're not conscious of. Over the long term. Yep. Right. So what is it, what's the longevity with that journey as well? And speaking of longevity, we've actually got the Remora. How do you pronounce that? Uh, well, I'm going to go the uh, Rimowa. Rimowa. <laughs> I'm going to go Rimowa luggage here. And it's their electronic tag. And so tagging on bags is something which is going to go through a revolution. And Rimowa are one of the leaders in this. Uh, they're using the same display technology that you go get in a Kindle, mm -hmm. so you don't have to leave the screen on. It's a low-tooth, uh, a low-power Bluetooth device, but mm -hmm. it means that you no longer have a printed baggage tag. It's actually on the bag through a Bluetooth app. Now, as we know, everything eventually gets hacked. Standards change. Yep. And so if you're the team at Rumor, you've got to turn around and work out if we don't keep our digital team and our software team involved in working out how, the, how we maintain our platform, when one of those changes happens and all of a sudden there's a security vulnerability, that's often what's referred to as a zero-day uh, patch. Mm. And the travellers cannot accept that their bag didn't get to the destination because Rumor weren't able to go do a zero-day vulnerability patch. So their design journey is that they have to be on guard all the time because their offer is that your bag will get to where it should. That's part of what they built into the bag. I think their challenge also is they're still competing against a printed label. Too. Well, they won't be printing. <laughs> they won't be competing against a printed label in Europe very soon. Because mm, they're so, that, aren't Yeah. They? So the idea of printed labels in Europe is well and truly on the way out. Yeah. Which, means, which is great news for all of the baggage uh, companies. But the, these guys are the leaders in the market. They're first to market with the product. And the reason I included it, it's a good example of their design journey is that it's a continuum. It doesn't mean they have to be on it every day, but they need to know that they need a rapid response and it isn't a contractor that they used to use. It's somebody who they've currently got engaged. And anticipating what's going on in the climate as well and responding to that. So there'll be things that you know they have to watch out for. And that's the other thing, you know, you can't just do these things in isolation. I think that's the other, big, especially with something like this, right? It's so dependent on what's happening around it with these hacks and things. But yeah, it's, it, can you imagine have, having thinking about this situation 10 years, 15 years ago? 
Well, and if you and if you're thinking about that, that it could be that this actually works for five or ten years and then needs to be dealt with. So I was um, speaking to somebody on the weekend about a story for a guy that I used to work with, and he was, and he was, uh, if we were trying to go push a product out, and he was fervently working away on something. I said, "Why are you doing that? We're meant to be doing this other thing." He says, oh, "I've got to go fix this bit of code," and it was old-fashioned assembler code and he was he, he had double propellers going right. over his head this guy and and i said to him well how long's this code been around and he said oh it was the very first thing that i wrote on my first day in this company i said that was a while ago he said oh about 15 17 years ago so there was this piece of code which had been act, functioning properly but all of a sudden it stopped working mm. and so i think anybody who has a digital product you have to think about how do you go do that maintenance cycle. And then when that maintenance cycle happens, it could be that you need to get your design team involved because the user interface may have changed because some of that functionality that used to make the user interface work is no longer there. It's that. And also behaviours and expectations have changed in that time. Yep. So then the new standard or the new norm is different, right? Like what you might have designed might have been perfectly acceptable that back 10 years ago, but now people have a new expectation and that's what you've got to redesign into that experience. So listeners, I hope that we've been able to go and create some clarity for you about some different dimensions around design journeys. We haven't done this to try to go create confusion or fog. <laughs> try to work out which one applies to you, try to understand that. My email address is everywhere around the internet. Yeah. It's pretty easy to go find me. <laughs> I think Kirsten's pretty easy You're to very find. Very easy to find, don't you? Uh, very easy to find, <laughs> and we'll stop there, Kirsten. <laughs> and uh, so, if you need to, please reach out. But um, this coaching side of how do you go make sure that you're in, in in control is a really important part about what we're about at Driven by Design. So, thank you, Kirsten, for helping to go through the project. Thank you for having me, listeners. Thank you, and as I always say, be driven by design.